So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is often to their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Welcome to the program on this, the 25th day of June in the year 2013. I am your host, Yael Osofsky, broadcasting to you on the Liberty Radio Network and on the No Agenda stream. I'm broadcasting to you from the beautiful city of Vienna, Austria, and uh, we do have an action-packed show, so we're going to start this program with a guest, which does not happen too often on the show, but we love it every single time. And on the line, we have uh, Adam Sandlin, who is coming to us from the depths of North Carolina. That is Adam Sandlin of Nothing Delivered, nothingdelivered.wordpress.com. Thank you, Adam, for coming on. And how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, I'm uh, superb and uh, trying to enjoy the cooler weather in Vienna today, but uh, that's the way it goes. So, welcome what's, your, to... what's your temperature in Fahrenheit? Though? Oh, temperature Fahrenheit. What a, what a funny thing to say Fahrenheit. Yeah, I, think, well, I, th- wanna... I think today in Fahrenheit it's about probably 50 degrees. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. That's fine. We actually, uh, I, w- I was very sunburned from the weekend because that's what happens uh, sometimes when the sun comes out in Europe. You're get burnt to crisp. What's what's like your? Is today t- t- cooler than usual? No, today's pretty average. Uh, you know, it's it's been a little bit rainy the last few weeks in Europe, and it's led a lot of people to talk about the you know the. Uh, the peril of global warming, of course, uh, ruining our lives and making everything hot and unbearable. But it really hasn't been that way for us. It's very. It's been pretty much flooded. Uh, there have been a lot of huge floods in Vienna and Budapest and all across Eastern Europe. So right now it's rainy, kind of not really the great weather. Okay. Yeah. But enough about that. We got plenty of uh, topics here in the show notes. Uh, if you are listening uh, listening along, you can go to libertyinexile.com. We have the show notes there all put out. I guess I'll give uh, Adam the first pickin' uh, because he put a lot of links on here, some things that are very interesting to him, and uh, he brings a different flavor to this show, so I figured I'd, I'd give him free reign. So, Adam, as you wish. Hey, are you implying that they're not interesting to you? No, I'm saying I don't normally talk about them. I'm saying I don't normally sit in a room by myself and I can't really talk about this stuff. It's always better to have the dialogue when you talk about okay. this, these kind of things. All right. 
I guess first we can talk about this uh, Texas sighting of mice and men, an execution ruling. Okay, so this is an article from the New York Times. Uh, I don't know much about it, so fill me in. Well, essentially, there's been a Supreme Court ruling uh, many years ago that that basically, if you if if you have if your state has execution uh, like Texas does, um, you cannot execute a quote unquote mentally retarded person, um, and Texas still does that. The way that they interpreted the ruling uh, was basically was basically it's up to them to decide whether the person was uh, like again quote unquote mentally retarded uh, and so what they've done or what they did is they use kind of their their uh, watermark uh, or their acid tests whether the guy seemed smarter or dumber than Lenny from Of Mice and Men have you read Of Mice and Men? Yeah. Uh, yes I did as it was part of my high school curriculum yeah well it's a great Great uh, text, um, and but Lenny, and basically Lenny is, you know, he does he does kill somebody. He doesn't mean to. Well, it's a, it's the little white girl. Uh, right. Was he trying to hug her or something? Right. Yeah. Um, and so they're saying, so basically, Texas has said, okay, and it, they haven't said this explicitly. It comes from a it comes from a uh, a Texas appeals court uh, from whenever they had previously executed a mentally impaired man and it said yeah you, know, um, you can say uh mental invalid or lunatic these are actually words in the federal register that are used to describe these persons uh, that's ridiculous uh <laughs> but anyway uh, basically what the texas appeals court said most texas citizens might agree that steinbeck's lenny should by virtue of his lack of reasoning ability and adaptive skills be exempt but does a consensus of Texas citizens agree that all persons who might legitimately qualify for assistance under the social services definition of mental retardation be exempt from an otherwise constitutional penalty? So basically, they're saying if you're, if if most if you are found to be dumber than Lenny, uh, then you should go ahead and. And be executed. Wow! Um, so that's like the bar now. <laughs> that's, that's Texas's bar, um, and a lot of people have said, "Well, that's that's unconstitutional, or not unconstitutional, but you're like you're base. You are not interpreting the Supreme Court correctly." Uh, and I don't have that in front of me. What the, no, the well, yeah, what they're doing is like. they're they're using fiction, you know, things right. that have come from the thoughts and ideas of an author to try to create law and impose it on everyone else. Yeah, and the thing is Steinbeck's family kind of said this is this is ridiculous. Um, you cannot use Lenny Small as a benchmark quote-unquote to identify whether <laughs> defendants and in, with intellectual disability should live or die. It's um, funny. And then uh, his son said I'm certain that if my father, John Steinbeck, were here you would be deeply angry and ashamed to see his work used in this way, and the last thing you ever wanted to do was to make John Steinbeck angry oh. because he was, this is part of the quote, he was uh, the inspiration for the Hulk. John Steinbeck was or Lenny? 
No, I'm just kidding. No, John Stein, I, I, yeah, but they did say the last thing you ever wanted to do was to make John Stein that Oh, game. shut up. <laughs> no, they did. They did say that. that the whole thing I was joking about. But, yeah. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well. So, but, but yeah, uh, anyway, this all came, this, this all came up last year in August because there was a guy with uh, an IQ of 61 basically met any reasonable definition of whether somebody is mentally impaired and therefore he should not have been executed by federal law. Federal law said he shouldn't be executed, but by Texas's benchmark of Lenny Small, well, they said, well, he seems smarter than Lenny Small, so they executed him. Yeah, but, I mean, even so, this uh, intellectual quotient of the IQ, is this really something, and I've read a lot of studies, that this thing isn't even a true test of intelligence. It's something that no, has... No, it's not. I'm not saying... I agree with you, but that's not the only thing that they... That's not the only yeah, thing no, they... I, Yeah, I'm sure they, they put in cognitive skills or ability to play well with others, I'm sure, is in there. And if you go... I don't, I, I don't know if you have the article pulled up. If you go to the, the Guardian article that kind of set off all of this... Um, that, and you story, go look... that sparked this debate. <laughs> right. Well, if you go and look more into the actual story behind behind this guy even gets Marvin Wilson is his name the guy who uh, who was was executed for for being smarter than Lenny Small <laughs> among other things uh, he said uh, quote uh, basically Wilson was one of two perpetrators leaving him vulnerable to his more sophisticated accomplice and the main witness against him was that accomplice's wife who claimed she heard him confess to pulling the trigger hmm. so basically he was one of two people and uh, the only witness who said that he was the one who actually killed the person was that accomplice's wife. So it not just is the process of putting this guy to death sort of being looked at and criticized, but actually the entire, basically, uh, I guess, his prosecution is also being questioned. Because if you're you know, starting to bring in other witnesses or, or questioning sure. other people, then... I mean, I, I always assume that, and I know this from 12 Angry Men, <laughs> another yeah. part of fiction, that in order to get the death penalty in a lot of states, it has to be a unanimous uh, sort of decision by the jury. Were they going to put him to, were they going to put him to death? Yeah, they were going to put him to death in 12 Angry Men, weren't they? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it was a unanimous decision. This is from, the, the trial is from 1992, so I guess the guy's been on death row for was on death row for about a decade. You know what? And that's funny because I remember with you, we went to go see a documentary on death row. Yeah, Into the Abyss, wonderful movie with uh, Lars von Trier. I know, God, no, Werner Herzog, sorry. Not Lars von Trier. (laughs) Sorry, you know who Lars von Trier is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, and, and the, the interesting thing about that movie is just looking at the death penalty itself, uh, whereas in you know this article and really this story is just talking about the measure of intelligence for whether someone can be put to death or not. I say this is basically what happens when you give uh, the government and the criminal justice system this power. Mm-hmm. When you really allow this to become law and to become standard, then you just have to expect that these lines will be blurred and sort of these arbitrary tests and measures will come up. But are they more the rule or the exception? What do you mean? I mean, is it... All right, how, how many retarded this, people it, are getting... Are you saying that... How many retarded people are in the electric chair per year? Is that your question? No, no, no. No, what I'm saying is what you said, basically, this kind of... These kind of uh, benchmark tests are going to... That they're going to become... Standards, and I'm saying, are they standards or are they, or is this just 
a really unusual case. Well, by it being in the jurisprudence, it will become standard, and people will draw on this for future cases, and if they are perhaps below a certain IQ, then this is case law, and they can use that in their defense. So to that end, I mean, yeah, this is basically enshrined forever in, in the courts. I, I mean, you should just get rid of the death penalty. You don't really have to mess with any of this. But then again, I don't really know what to do with, uh, with a lot of people. A lot of people in Europe are very upset over this guy, Anders Breivik. Right. Uh, he was the Norwegian uh, shooter. And actually, when I went to Oslo, I there's actually a tour you can take of uh, Anders Breivik's uh, mass shooting spree. You know, I think he did it near the city hall where I was at, and then he went up to some camp a few miles north of town. Uh-huh. He only got 15 years in prison. That's the maximum under the Norwegian law. Okay. And he wow. killed he killed like 70 people and then a lot of, you know, a lot of people that we see here in America, there's some shady circumstance, somebody died and the guys in jail for life executed, who knows. So it's either it's either too lax or too harsh. Yeah, and really, what can a society do? Like, if you put someone in jail for the rest of your life, the rest of their life, then everyone else is paying for this guy to not have liberty. Right. You know, it seems weird. But then again, you don't want to give the job of the government to start killing people left and right because they break the the law. I mean, that's – I don't know. That's why I'm not in that position, and uh, I am safe and comfortable here at my desk. One thing that I – one thing that really affected me – about that film that we saw was the guy who had put so he was he was the one who had basically walked the people down death row uh, and had taken part in so many executions and one day he just could not do it anymore like and it wasn't like the weight of it was going like going on his shoulders over time it was like he did it for years and never thought twice about it and then he he just suddenly realized all of a sudden it just came on him like a like a water wall like it was just like oh gosh i cannot do this anymore and he quit like on the spot yeah that's true and it's just uh it's just so, it's such a strange thing to be the last person for not just one person but for so many people that that person ever communicates with before they're gone you know? i think i think that's the the whole part of the justice system now is that people are so trained to just view it as an aspect of the job. They don't even look at the moral implications of it. Yeah. And that's why officers, and you know, you've probably felt as much as I have, whenever you get pulled over, whether it be justified or arbitrarily, you know, the cop is treating you like you are a criminal and asking sure. you all types of questions. I mean, it's just the, that's what the training has done to them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a little strange. I... I... I think it would be interesting to because I've talked to whenever you talk to or I've talked to policemen one on one. You know, we've had uh, it, lots of times and just having conversations with them is awesome. I think uh, because, but it's so it's so different. Like if you get stopped by a cop, it's like any cop. It's not a human on human uh, kind of interaction. It's really strange. And a friend of mine, I, he was actually my roommate when I lived in Philadelphia, gave me this awesome book called A Cop in the Hood. Yeah. And he was basically an anthropologist who signed up to be a cop for about a year. And he did research and basically you know, interviewed people. And he did this whole spiel about what's going on in, in today's policing. And he just was making an interesting case that 
basically the training now is so in it's basically inhumane that yeah. is basically making these police officers and giving them the incentives to crack down on people to basically not really care about constitutional concerns to plant drugs and it just mm-hmm. to do these terrible things it's terrible you know i'm thinking about right now and i can't find it but it was an article that i it was an article that i had found i can't i think it was about a year ago or maybe lauren was telling me about it but it was uh but it was about a cop who had never never in the whole time he'd ever been a cop he'd never had a complaint filed against him um and it was because he was like, I mean, it's not that he wasn't doing his job. He was, he was like you said, pulling people over, giving them tickets. But they were doing this thing where, of course, I think it was Warren who was telling me about this. They were doing this thing where they were stopping people after, after he had given them a ticket. And they were like, tell me about your interactions with that, with that policeman. And they were like, oh, he was a really nice guy. Like, they didn't, they, they felt... They, they didn't feel, they didn't hold anything against them for giving them a ticket or anything like that, um, which I think is, from what this article is saying, or whatever it was, they were saying that it's basically par for the course for lots of policemen to get complaints against them all the time, uh, just because people are mad. Um, but that this guy basically treated the people that he was, you know, ticketing or whatever like they were people, you know? Like human beings. Right. Wow. Yeah, and I I did I, I will say this I I've had I've been pulled over three times in my life. Uh, well, actually, I've four. been pulled over three times in a week. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I've been pulled over four times, um, and only one of them was in Concord, where I live. And I will say that two of those times were really really positive experiences. Uh, one of them uh, the the the, the and the one that was in Concord was a policewoman, and she was really, 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 really nice and understanding. And I did not hold anything against her whenever uh, I got my. It was actually a warning because my I hadn't had my car inspected, um, and maybe that was maybe that was part of why I didn't feel bad about it. But I mean, I think I was actually on the phone with you when it happened. You know, Remember she's. That? But the thing is, and I have to say, you're under this this type of illusion. Yeah that I found very odd because it's like she you, you keep you said this before oh she was just being nice you know she was making everything all pleasant i mean she is by definition not making your life pleasant sure, if sure. She, if she's stopping your trip going down the road in order to write you a ticket then i i don't know i i know that situation i know it where oh you know but he was very nice and, but still they have discretion and they're not obliged to give tickets to every single bad thing they've ever seen in their life. Right. So, I don't It's, again, I, most individual police officers you can never blame. And even I've been pulled over. I got pulled over for having a, you know, Ron Paul sticker on the Jeep. And the guy thought I was drunk. I got to go out. And he was treating me like, basically, I, again, I am a criminal. I'm a prisoner. Right. Tell me, go here. Get out of the car. And as soon as I blow a 0.000, it's like we're best friends. I, I hear what you're saying, but I, say, I thought we I thought we were discussing something different. You're discussing, like, you don't think that... Well, I mean, what, are, what are you saying exactly? Because Well, basically, all you're seeing the human face of the system. And if the human face is nice, then it's okay. But I've seen the inhuman face, too. I mean... Yeah, I think that I think that we could all do our duty with a little more humanity. Yeah, I I ain't got no duty. 
So uh, that that leads us to a transition. Uh, there are a couple articles. I'm not exactly sure which one uh, you want to go to. Now uh, we can do Facebook studies. We can do looking at some of your list, or we can talk about Orwell's 1984. Let's do the Facebook studies. Cool. This is uh, an article from Forbes that I picked up. Uh, it was written by a journalist called uh, Kashmir Hill. She's actually one of my favorite uh, writers on the interwebs, and uh, she normally writes pretty interesting things about Bitcoin and what's going on with startups uh, out in California, I think. And she wrote this pretty cool article looking at uh, social scientists and what they're saying about Facebook and things we're learning. So, Adam, what were some of the uh, interesting ones that you, you picked out of the list here? Uh, let's see. I didn't, I didn't have time to go and look at any of the actual studies. Um, I do like it's scientifically proven that Facebook's privacy settings are confusing. Yes, because you got to pay, you got to pay social researchers to find that out. I do like <laughs> I, I do like the uh, degrees of separation. Uh, apparently, we are now, according to uh, some study here, we're linked to about anyone by a four point seven four people. I, I, I can believe it. Yeah, so four point seven four degrees separate you from any other person on the planet. But I do wonder about that. I'd like to. I need. I need to look more into this because. No, I, I think it's av- I, It's average, though. It's average. Okay, because every time I hear about the six degrees of separation, I'm like, are we just talking about? <laughs> I know. I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, what about I'm the tribe? About- the tribe in the Amazon. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who knows them? <laughs> I'm always, well, I'm always thinking about third world countries in general, especially with this with Facebook. It's like they don't. I don't think they have Facebook, do they? I mean, uh, right. Well, it doesn't have to be Facebook in general. I think it more has to be maybe, well, actually, this would be a deeper study. Like, I know you through Facebook. You met this guy who used to live in Africa in Ghana, and then he used to be a teacher there, and he has a whole school, so then he knows everybody there, so therefore you, eh. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that, that would have to be how it would work, though. Um Cause, but I think for that study, without clicking on it, it, really what they're talking about more is people who have Facebook are connected in that way. And I can buy that. Stuff white people like on Facebook, other white people? Uh, that's probably true. You know, I really – I don't understand this, and you know, perhaps I'm wrong in this. I always hear this a lot on progressive shows. They say – well, you know, the, the problem with the Republicans and Tea Parties and all these people, it's all made up of white people. I mean, I understand their point, but again, it's still the majority, you know, racial makeup of most of the country. Sure. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that Aunt Betsy's cooking school only has white people. I mean, I, I don't think mathematically that is a terrible problem that uh, we need to be concerned about. But again, maybe well, that's just me. I actually think the stuff white people like that whole idea, and I think it's uh, it's a website too. Um, yeah, I used to read that blog. That's good. Right, I think it's whenever they're talking about white people, they're really talking about a certain subculture in white people, which is basically like kind of left leaning, um, middle upper class or upper upper middle class hmm. white people, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that, 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 I think, is what people are referring to when they're referring to white people. Hmm. Uh, people who talk about politics online 
are more likely to be involved in politics offline. Yeah, duh. Um, I, I have found that there are there is a different dynamic of people who are just willing to. I mean, again, I've studied political science. I'm big into that, and I have friends and I know people who on, are on the Facebook and will do nothing, nothing, but just talk all day about every little issue and insert mm-hmm. their commentary. And again, people have the right to do that. Right. I think that's the whole point. But when you start, I mean, I can pick apart someone psychologically based upon just what they post on Facebook like in a two day span of time sure that ain't cool (laughs) that ain't cool and if I was in the if I was a CIA NSA guy I mean I'd be having a field day it would be awesome so well, well, I don't know, man. Like, if somebody's, it depends on how much you the the individual is willing to share on Facebook. Don't you yeah. think? I mean, I don't think a terrorist is necessarily going to have the kind of <laughs> the kind of psychological, sociological, whatever makeup on Facebook that like I do because no. I'm not well, a terrorist. Yeah, but okay, NSA guy listening. <laughs> no. Uh, but no, no but. Yeah. No, but it's not going to be a terrorist guy. Web uh, his web his uh, web page. He likes Al Qaeda, you know. And then he starts typing. He goes, man, it's a great day for Al Qaeda today. <laughs> and you know, hey, you're going to be at the Al Qaeda barbecue next week. I mean, not that. Of course yeah. not. I mean, I think by definition, he's not going to do it. But just just some people and what they talk about and their own likes and preferences you can sort of pick people apart and i guess i'm just saying you that make a profile i guess but i mean it's it's just annoying and if i can do it just me sitting there imagine what the algorithms can do that's more my point yeah that's more my point and most people i've noticed nowadays actually are posting their stuff public because they don't know that their posts automatically now go to public that's a new yeah. change that facebook did uh, a few weeks ago the privacy stuff, I go in there every month or so and make sure that it is what I want it to be. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because, yeah, you might have a friend who didn't realize he or she posted something uh, that was public. And so then you realize that even if you stop somebody from seeing something that you didn't want them to see, that they still might see something that you didn't post that you're tagged in, like a photo that's public. Yeah, that's the um, worst. Yeah, and so then you have to basically the only solution is to go through and remove yourself from the photo or talk to the person and tell them, hey, you know that this is actually public, like anybody can see it, yeah. People who are conscientious, uh, agreeable, and emotionally stable are less likely to post Facebook status updates about sex and drugs. That's a big, big surprise. Just kidding. Um, Emotionally stable, I like that. I did like the, um, I did like... Need to chill out? Facebook stalk yourself. Looking at heavily curated best versions of our digital selves makes us feel better about our lives. I think that's probably true. Yeah, uh, but I have to admit, I haven't really been doing that as much lately because I've been doing that on my own website. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. You're still doing the same thing. You're feeling better about yourself because you're looking at the version of yourself that you're in a way, but I, I guess going on to the Facebook now for a lot of people, people have different rituals of what they will share, of what they do share, of what they will like, and I don't know. I, I'm just not interested in 
I mean, I'm, I'm probably a terrible Facebooker. I really now only post stuff I write elsewhere, yeah. uh, pictures, and that's about it. You know, I'm not chatting it up back and forth, really. And, you know, Melanie kind of owns my page because she's tagging me all the time, so. <laughs> hey, what did you, well, what about this one? Yeah, how to lose friends and bore people. Choose polarizing or trivial topics of conversation. Yeah. No, that's, and I. That's your whole I, Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. Well, not the trivial stuff, but the polarizing stuff. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I don't think I'm that bad. I mean, I, I have a lot of uh, people who would call themselves classical liberals or libertarians who all the day just sit around and talk about, hey, the non-aggression principle and like this obscure libertarian thinker that probably five people know of right. and like put that as out as a status update to you know your friends and your family that you've known since you were young. And I, I don't know, it just... I feel like I would alienate people right away, and yeah. I see no need to do that. Yeah. But then again, I alienate people when I speak in when I write in French, uh, because you know that's again it's just a limited audience. Right. And a lot of people will. I've even gotten posts like, "Huh, you're writing in French? <laughs> you know I don't speak Spanish. Yeah, I don't want this on my newsfeed. I have thought about saying that. Yeah, like, you uh, dick. You from Anch- no, just from Anchorman. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. If you <laughs> do it and it's from a show, it's okay. It is, man. It's, it's uh, you know, you're trying to parody other people. But then you mm-hmm. also kind of agree with yourself at the same time. Perhaps. It's like, a way, it's like a way that you can say, hey, I don't like it when you post in French. But at the same time, you're not saying, I don't like it when you post in French. Yeah, you're being indirect about it. No, I'm just joking around. I don't hey, care. you're being an indirect dick. <laughs> I don't care when you post in French, man. I'm just kidding. What if what if this whole podcast was just an argument between us? It is. Should post <laughs> in French. That's the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Not not much else interesting. But it's, it's a cool little article. Cool little thing. Uh, that honestly, that probably took an entire day of researching on Google Scholar <laughs> to, f- to find that stuff. So. I do think it's interesting. She has one one thing she got from Huffington Post. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I feel like if I got something from Huffington Post, I just... I mean, I know she kind of is obligated to do it, but I would just kind of not even say I got it from Huffington Post. Well, I mean, that's just where it's probably mentioned in you know, a better way. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Have you seen that Twitter account... Uh, Huff Post spoilers. No, <laughs> no, what is thing, this? It's just making fun of how Huffington Post, you know, very the way that they make their headlines is basically yeah. so you'll click on them to see, like you won't believe what this person said, you know. And so look at Kanye's bathing suit. Yeah, so there's a whole Twitter account that basically just says what it is <laughs> like one of the funniest ones from last night I was looking at it was like you won't believe what this girl washes her face with and then it said water <laughs> like that was what it that's what the answer was uh, which is kind of good because that's I get I get annoyed with that kind of what do you think of it that kind uh, of journalism wait of Huffington Post journalism just the whole like BuzzFeed Huffington Post like clickbait style kind of thing well I mean BuzzFeed in a way I mean I've met journalists from BuzzFeed and actually hold on like this podcast is sponsored by BuzzFeed buddy well I've I have met uh, 
journalist from BuzzFeed. I, I've done some you know research into it, and I, you know I don't know. I think this is how you get a lot of people to pay attention to serious news. Is you have to pepper it with this stupid content of uh, what again what Kanye is wearing or the name of some baby or something. But again, I don't really know. Is that really how we have to attract people because uh, you know we think we're in, they're interested in that or are they reading the news because they're interested in that? Who knows? I, I don't know. I'm well, not. This kind of goes back to that age-old question: is like, is intellectualism on the decline, or is this the way things have always been done? I think, I yeah, I think the the greatest part is we're probably just black boxing every single part of our intellectual development. Like everyone is, on the whole, getting more intelligent. It's just now we do things without questioning them because we don't need to know. Like we don't need a bunch of mechanics all the time because a lot of people buy new cars or we don't need to all be computer engineers because you can buy a computer for 200 bucks right so that's one way but eh, enough about that so uh, we get the couple other subjects here on our list uh, some controversies uh, some uh, tragedies what, what do you want to go for there sir Adam well I guess let's talk about that uh, let's talk about that 1984 all right, article. cool. So an article from Michael Moynihan in Newsweek uh, on the Daily Beast called, Sorry, it's not 1984. Why we're not living Orwell's dystopia. So this is uh, an interesting article which sort of plays upon everyone. I mean, actually, just about a month ago, I did a show on Liberty in Exile just called, uh, you know, Liberty, or no, 1984 is not a beginner's manual, going through every single part of the book and why it either was or is not sort of the world that we're living in today. And I think the point made by Mr. Monaghan is that you cannot really compare because there are so many you – know, basically, the world we live in is not as tyrannical as portrayed. Right. Is that the gist of it? Yeah. Well, like, like I said, the key sentence here is – the rule here is simple. If you are invoking 1984 in a country in which 1984 is available for purchase and can be freely deployed as a rhetorical device, you likely don't understand the point of 1984. And then it goes on to say something I didn't know, that George, that George Orwell basically wrote an article saying, like, why people need to stop saying that this is like 1984. Or like, this was back in the day, because apparently this has been going on for years and years before we were even born, that people were saying, oh, it's just like 1984. And Orwell was saying, God, no, it's not like 1984. <laughs> you know, because yeah. he's, he's commenting on, like, just complete, you know, same thing as Animal Farm, absolute power corrupts absolutely, that kind of thing, you know. Well, the whole point is that we, everyone tries to imagine some type of future or some type of situation. They have to relate it to fiction, so sure. why not use this idea that someone else has created, you know, for tomorrow? Like people often get this idea that uh, if something happens or if we don't have governments or something, then it's just going to be Lord of the Flies, for example. Sure. Yeah. Uh, they, well, you see in this book what happens, you know, and then that's yeah. I, and like my my favorite thing he says here is uh, basically, if I can find it, says um, Orwell's complexity evaporates in the political struggle for ownership of his soul. His work endlessly adduced in service of various liberal, libertarian, and conservative causes. And I think that's just spot on. Because it's a complex text, everyone feels like they can grab some part of it and say, oh, well, Orwell was on our side. You can see in 1984, 
And it's not that simple. It's that's that's not what he's talking about. Can I be controversial? Go for it. Is it like the Bible? What do you mean? Just you just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just mean like people using different sectors and or different oh, sections okay. of the Bible to say, well, don't you see? This is why gays shouldn't marry, or this is why. I don't know. Incest is bad. Sure. Or something. This is why. Yeah, I mean, this is why we have what different denominations yeah. <laughs> of uh, Christianity. It's just uh, they different interpretations of the Bible. So I'm not controversial at all. Okay. All right. Cool. Not a big deal. That's an old. That's an old idea. That's man. An old but no. Yeah. I think that's true, and I think it's kind of funny because Orwell is kind of he's kind of attacking all sides. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that's kind of how. That's, and that's why another thing, which I'm glad it's on the list and we can talk about it uh, in tandem with what we're talking about here, is that, is that the animated version of Orwell's Animal Farm uh, was actually funded by the CIA, which blew my mind whenever I found out about well, it. You're going more crackpot than I am. But that's it's true. It's a true story. <laughs> yeah, no, that, it, it is very true. Uh, I guess this came out, uh, what, a few years ago or something, and... It has to do with messaging and has to do with, I guess, trying to get, uh, I don't know, propaganda tuned to your station. Right. Well, because the, well, the whole thing is it's part, it was part of Cold War, that the C, uh, Cold War propaganda that the CIA paid for. Because, you know, Animal Farm is famously an allegory for what was going on mm-hmm. uh, in the Soviet Union at that time. Um, and that, that was really the only way that... Well, the story is that was basically the only way he could get his ideas published because at the time, you know, in America, a lot of people were saying, oh, it's great what they're doing over there because um, they really didn't know the, tr- the full story, you know. Um, and so what's going on is he kind of says, oh, well, here's what's going on, except uh, we're going to make it so that it's animals on a farm and everything stands for something else, and that's the allegory. And so, But the whole point of the book is that Russia is not the only – it's not, or not the it's not the only country that is being criticized here. It's every it's everyone. It's yeah. uh, it's it's about power corrupting, period. You know, and of course Russia is the one that's being criticized the most, just because it's probably the most egregious. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's not praising like democracy in favor of. Yeah. You know, he, he, he's not praising democracy. He's he's taking democracy to task too, um, and so he would be horrified to know that that's what his his work was being used for with propaganda by U.S. Uh, I just think that's kind of interesting. Well, I could not have said it better myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this whole appropriating... Now, you can do it, the appropriating whatever literary text, especially if it's something as complex as 1984, to whatever you're you're trying to align it to your political beliefs and I just think it's I think it's, I, don't, uh, I don't think it's about aligning it to political beliefs but I think it's it's a public and, and shared text so we all mm-hmm. have a shared imagination perhaps of what a world 1984 is so it's a, just a way to relate it's a way to use analogy to present ideas about the present Couldn't you well the problem here I think is that people who are not who maybe ha- are familiar with the terms big brother and the basic idea in the story I've also not read the story. Uh, you know. No, and, I, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, no doubt. And it's not like, uh, you know, this, this article talks about how Atlas Shrugged kind of became a bestseller again uh, during the financial crisis. Um, but I, to me, that's a bit different because this, this article calls uh, 
Ayn Rand's prose didactic, which is preachy, basically. Um, and, it's, and, that's and it's weird because this guy used to write for Reason Magazine, like the, the libertarian, you know, outlet. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, but the thing is that the thing is that whether you like Rand or not, it is didactic. I mean, Atlas Shrugged has what a, a seventy-page speech <laughs> that like outlines exactly what it is this she believes. You know what? Um, what John? And, what John Gall believes? Sure, but you know, <laughs> John Galt is. Yeah. No, I understand. He's not. He's not. He's. He's not. Uh, it's, it's that's what Ayn Rand believes, right? I mean, that's that's what she's writing about. She didn't make it any kind of secret what it is she was writing about, and neither did Orwell. But Orwell kind of trusted his audience to read the book and think and realize what it was he was talking about without him just outright saying it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so that's kind of the difference here. And that's why if you're going to invoke 1984, you kind of need to read 1984 and realize that you don't live in 1984. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I I would agree, and but there still are many facets of it that just like if we read Brave New World, there are generalizations sure. that we can take from a fictional story, and say that it applies to today. In uh, not Brave New World, for example, everyone takes Soma is very docile and basically does not do anything and uh, is very passive, sure. and you can very much argue that 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 is exactly what happens today, and many people are. Passive, docile, they sit and watch television, and yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I mean, there is a way to liken it to our society, but it's so reductive to just look at it in that one way, uh, to just say, well, this is basically going to be our society, and that's it. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, yeah. that's just looking at it in one very simplistic way. And um, No, I agree, I agree. And, of course, life uh, right now, it can never be linear. I mean, there's so much stuff going on all over the world you can't ever reduce it to one single element yeah exactly and i feel like um and this maybe goes back to what we we're talking about with intellectualism um we we live in a society and maybe society has always been this way i don't really know but we live in a society where we very much like to have the answer we don't like to live in any kind of or we don't like to kind of live with any kind of ambiguity um and so we immediately kind of jump to our own conclusions, and that's it. And um, and you can do that to an extent with Rand, um, but you can't really do it with Orwell. Orwell kind of wants you to look at it from all sides. Yeah, that's true. Like most great literature, you know. In a way. I mean, is that truly the author's intent always? I mean, a lot of times they're just trying to get out a story or their thoughts. And I think, I mean, I of course, you've you've dealt with this a lot more than I have, but... The author's intent, I believe, is always very romanticized. Uh, you oh, know, sure. In a lot yeah, of and that's, yeah, and we can't, yeah, you cannot, uh, you know, speaking as former English major here, uh, you can't, you can't just say, well, is this what Orwell wanted us to do? Because uh, I think it's T.S. Eliot has a really famous quote about how, you know, once the, once your work is out in the open, it is open to, whatever people see in it and there might be things that the author didn't even know that he was putting in there uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not valid yeah. once it's once it's out in the public it ceases to be your work and it starts to be everyone's work and uh, yeah. so everyone's opinion is valid as long as they can back it up much, you know? much like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein you know is a very deeply philosophical book about humans and nature and instead 
all we have now in fiction about Frankenstein is, you know, you have the monster walking around eating people. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, and most people say call Frankenstein, uh, call the monster Frankenstein. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. In a way, for people who know, who've actually read it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's, but it's also, uh, I think that How I Met Your Mother had a joke where it was like, where it was kind of pointing out that the main character, Ted, is pretentious because she's, like, they're watching a movie and uh, his girlfriend's like, oh, Frankenstein's really scary. And he's like, oh, that's actually Frankenstein's monster. So I guess it is, it is kind of pretentious to be the one to point that out because we, we kind of just see it. We see it and say Frankenstein, even though it's not exactly what it is. Well, I guess we kind of have a duty, I think, to put uh, those assumptions down. I think, you know, I yeah, I think there's a there's got to be a line between is there really any point in saying this, or are you just being pretentious? Uh, uh, but I, I would I would argue that it, you sort of need to, otherwise, it's like a regulating. It, it sort of becomes self-regulating. If you're in a social situation, some dude's like <laughs> Obama's born in Kenya. You guys can right. be like, no, dude. I mean, no. No, I think, and I think that's valid. I think it's valid to call somebody out on that. I don't, I don't know if it's valid to call somebody out on calling Frankenstein's monster Frankenstein. I do, because it's like, well, have you, you so? have you ever? Because if you ask people if they've read it, I uh, probably assume that ninety-five percent will say no. Yeah, but then you're just yeah, but then you're just making them feel stupid. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to necessarily. They're not necessarily going to say. I don't think the 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 effect of that conversation is going to be. Well, I should really read Frankenstein now. I got you know. Um, I just feel like you have to be kind of. I don't know. You'd be surprised, man. I've been in these situations where I've made some off the wall claim and somebody's corrected me, and I've I've felt the need to go back and get the real story. But um, to get back to what you're saying about. Authorial. Basically, you can have any interpretation whether or not the author intended it or not, but you do have to back it up. I always think about it. I had a, a friend in college who had this brilliant paper about this story by John Steinbeck, which was kind of just like a pulp, a pulp story about a chewing gum taking over, like a, like a chewing like a, about this guy's son who always chewed chewing gum, and eventually the chewing gum like turned into a blob, a monstrous blob uh, that was like wreaking havoc on on their lives. Um, and he and my friend wrote an entire paper about how it was about the spread of socialism in Europe, which it definitely is not. But he had such a good claim that it was still a brilliant paper. So you can kind of, if you have a claim, even if it's not what the author intended, if it makes sense, it makes sense. The problem with this 1984 stuff is that people are basically reducing it to, like, the cliff notes. Well, not even that. Less complex than the cliff notes. The great illustrated classics version of 1984 which just doesn't do anybody any good it just is basically somebody taking a wonderful piece of art and literature and shifting it uh, to their own ideology which I think is dangerous point taken very yeah. good um, did you want to talk about uh, or do you want to move on no yeah yeah um, sure sure it's all you but, uh, did you want to talk about the? I think the list thing is kind of. All right, cool. So you have, uh, you and I have, have for a very long time uh, enjoyed looking at these lists, uh, whether it be movies, ranking movies or music or shows. I think uh, you've written your own list, so that that's been very right. interesting. So give me your take on uh, on what's going on with this. Oh, I just, uh, I guess, uh, 
I'm interested in the whole idea of making a canon um, and how people do this um, and what some people think would be in the canon other people other people don't um, for instance I kind of had a, a conversation with some friends the other day where, where we talked about which movie deserved to be in like the American or not I guess it's not American but just the, the modern film canon um, and it was basically somehow it got to Shawshank Redemption versus the Lord of the Rings trilogy and I was arguing that if I had to choose whether one needed to exist or the other, I would have gone with the Lord of the Rings just because I thought it was, I thought it was more important. <laughs> and they and they kind of said no, Shawshank Redemption is the better movie. And it just kind of got and it kind of got into this interesting, what, you know, what do we, what what is the kind of thing that we need to make sure that we pay attention to forever and always for. Uh, what's more important to film, what's a better movie. Um, and so that's kind of the whole idea behind every list you see. And I just threw up a bunch that I've come across lately. AV Club had one of the best films of the 90s, um, best books of the 21st century uh, from GQ. Uh, and then there's a... Yeah, by, there's the, a by the way, I knew like three of those books. Well, that's the whole thing is that people's reactions, my, rea my personal reaction to when I see like attempts to make canons like this or lists like this I think oh this is a really good suggestion of things to watch for me like uh, probably movies that I'm going to like or at least going to make me think and that kind of thing but I think most people look at these lists and they go why isn't this on it you know um, and so I actually posted on my Facebook that GQ best books of 21st century and and I did have some people tell me later, like, oh, yeah, I looked at that. I, I, did, I didn't know what any of those books were. And so I, I didn't think that. And so that was all they thought. But I, I looked at the list, and I didn't really know what half of the books were either. But I thought, oh, man, this looks like a really cool list. Uh, I, I want to read these. Yeah, so it's, something, it's um, something to use and to go off of. Hmm. Yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's – I like lists. I like looking at them, and it gives you a good idea of if you look at the things on there that you do know and they're – there are things that you like, then you think, oh, well, this other stuff on the list is probably something I should pay attention to or not to, or pay attention to as well. Or you see a list that, well, like somebody has, uh, I don't know, uh, Tommy Boy, which I like. It's a good movie, but if they were making the best film of the 90s list and Tommy Boy was on there, I would immediately think, oh, okay, so this probably isn't a list that I really need to pay that much attention to. <laughs> Yeah, and the GQ article, I mean, it's very well done. It has nice little sketches of the authors. Right. And I like that they gave the authors uh, opportunities to to kind of uh, choose their own books that they thought were important from the past uh, 13 years. Um, and uh, it's actually a pretty, pretty good list. I, I always get a little kind of weirded out whenever it's anything. It's like every man should read these. I'm kind of like, well... What? But that's kind of GQ's audience in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's a really, really good list, and there, are, there's a pretty, there's a lot of diversity in the authors uh, there on that yeah. list. Yeah. And and I I was pretty alienated reading this because I for one rarely read fiction now. Right. So I there were, it didn't seem like there were any nonfiction books on this at all. So it's all fiction. Am I not a man because I only read nonfiction? Uh, I think. Well, I think this is all about. These are, it says right here, these are GQ's hands down's most emphatically favorite works of fiction. Ah, okay, okay. Um, so I think that, I don't think they were thinking of nonfiction because they really are two completely different things. Yeah, of I, course. I mean, there's 
plenty of nonfiction that we, we were talking before we started the podcast about Freakonomics and uh, and other nonfiction books. So I think that they were yeah. not considering nonfiction for this, but I would agree with you yeah. otherwise. Like, I think I, I would go through different trends. Like, uh, the book I just finished now is The New Great Game by Lutz, yeah. uh, Lutz Klavman. He's a German journalist. It, I really recommend that to anyone who's interested in why terrorism is such a big deal in the West and why wars are going on in the Middle East. Uh, his thesis is that there's a new great game, and that is trying to control the oil resources of Central Asia. And he has great maps and showing where oil pipelines are and where natural right. gas fields are. And it's just it's a very incredible book, very, very rich for that. And then book I read before this was uh, I read The Stranger by Albert Camus in the original French book that I bought. <laughs> sure. So I do like to go back and forth and I do think it's important and I think there are reasons to enrich yourself and you know your I guess thought capacities is the way I see it. It, inc- it increases your creativity to go from the book, oh, book about pipelines to one about you know what it's like to be a man and not care about anything and a stranger. If I have a problem with the GQ list, it's that it's very, very literary. Um, everything on there is kind of from a literary establishment. Uh, there's not really anything, uh, I guess, genre text, which I've always kind of been a big advocate of, and I've thought, and this kind of goes back to what you're saying, uh, that you, you kind of need to cover all your bases, I think, uh, and not just marginalize science fiction, because science fiction is typically not very good, or, or it's not as well written, um, but there's still a lot of value to be found in, like, um, Philip K. Dick, you know, um, and so I think that it's important. Well, he, kind of... yeah, he created Minority Report, which is another dystopian novel that people could be pointing to, about pre-crime. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting, we could probably have a whole podcast talking about Minority Report, but um, so I think you're right, I think uh, that these lists kind of do cater to um, a lot, most of the time these lists cater to a certain kind of person, um, and so if you're kind of, and so for me, since I'm kind of like you, I like to go all over the map, except I don't know if I would really be into that one book you were talking about, <laughs> <laughs> the nonfiction one, I, my eyes kind of glazed over as you were talking about it, um, but for me, nonfiction if I'm reading nonfiction, I really like a kind of journalistic nonfiction, uh, and I like uh, like biographies. Um, so I guess I still like to be told a story, even if I'm reading nonfiction. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that, well, that, that's kind of what his is. I mean, it's a personal tale of him, yeah. you know, meeting the oil baron and talking to the dude and seeing the oil pop up out of the ground. When you sell it like that, then I'm kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was just giving you the grand scope. I mean, the book's like 400, almost 500 pages. You know, it's a lot. Sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, so I think that, um, I think these lists, I love them, man. I, I go through them. That one that I posted from uh, Interleaves, it's a guy has compiled a bunch of different great books lists, and you can go through and find your favorite author and see if he's on a list, uh, and or which lists have them on there, and if it's worth reading, and that kind of thing. I just think that's so cool. Um, and then there's that, uh, that sight and sound poll, which is kind of the, the big one for film. Uh, it's the one that most people, even people who don't like those lists, uh, it's the one where they're kind of like, oh, well, this is the list because it is when they. It's whenever they pull all the critics, um, and all the all or not all the critics, but a lot of critics and a lot of directors, and see what they think the greatest films of all time are. And 
but there's such a problem with if you go to Vertigo or Citizen Kane and think the first time you see it, you just go, okay, I'm watching the greatest movie that has ever been made. Yeah, of course. Um, if you think about it in those terms, you're, I feel like you're going to struggle and you're not going to enjoy it as much as if you just thought, okay, let me just watch this movie and not think about it as the greatest movie of all time, but just enjoy it or just try, or just watch it like I would watch anything else. And I think that's kind of what you have to do. So it's like I get, I do give a lot of attention and I, I consult lists a lot, um, but I do it for ideas and to kind of expand my mind. I think it's wrong. I hate when people look at a list and go, well, why isn't this on there? You know? Yeah. And that's all they can focus on. And then there's also this sort of social pressure. Like if you don't think Vertigo or Citizen Kane is the greatest movie of all time, then there must be something wrong with you. Or sure. you cannot be an intellectual. <laughs> and then, well, then, but then that becomes, and then that becomes that form of anti-intellectualism, where somebody goes, "Well, I saw Citizen Kane. I didn't see what was so great about it. So I just don't think that this list is valid." Yeah. You know? Yeah. Avenger, think, Avengers is way better. I think Roger Ebert has a pretty good quote where he says, "He says," this, and Roger Ebert is not like he was like some highbrow intellectual. The whole point about the whole, if you read all those. Uh, articles that people were writing after Roger Ebert died, why they were kind of praising him was that he kind of took the intellectual study of film and brought it to people who maybe don't look at film that way to kind of help them see why it was why it is fun to look at movies this way. Um, and so, um, and so, Roger Ebert's response would be when somebody would say, "Well, I didn't see what was so great about Vertigo. Or I didn't see what was so great about Citizen Kane. What it was. Maybe you're not evolved enough as a moviegoer to enjoy this." to understand why it's a great movie. Oh, shit. Which I, I, I think is, I think that's kind of a valid thing to say. No way. Could well be. Could well be. And again, a reminder, all the links that we talked about uh, will be in the show notes at libertyinexile.com. Uh, we are just about at the hour mark. So it's been oh. a, a pleasure to talk to, to my friend there, Mr. Adam Sandlin in uh, North Carolina. Adam, uh, any parting thoughts uh, you'd like to share? Places you can maybe point uh, some of the listeners? Uh, no, this has been fun. Uh, thanks for having me on. Good, good man. And uh, if you would like to follow some of his work, hopefully Adam will be putting out one of these lists in the near future. It'll be at nothingdelivered.wordpress.com. Always uh, something to look forward to. So, Adam, uh, thanks a lot, my friend, and uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. That does it for us this week on Liberty in Exile. Again, uh, check us out on Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream. Check out the website and more. You can also follow me on the Twitter at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S. Uh, send me an email if you're interested at yael at live.ca. And do please check out the website and also check out news.eil.ca. That is a new uh, news venture I'm putting out there, but uh, that has been our show. So I'd like to, again, thank Mr. Sandlin for coming on, and for the rest of you, au revoir et bonne chance à tous. Visit libertynexile.com.